Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our values are our why, and they're central to our well-being and success in a world full of distractions, temptations, and challenges. I created this podcast to explore how values affect our personal lives, our relationships, and the wider world in which we live. Join me, Tom English, as I uncover which values help and which values hinder in the pursuit of success that's both meaningful and sustainable. Let's begin. It's my pleasure today to speak with David Woolner, who is Senior Fellow of the Roosevelt Institute and Professor of History at Marist College in the United States. He is also the author of The Last 100 Days, FDR, At War and At Peace. David, thank you for joining me on the Real Clear Values podcast today. My pleasure, Tom. David, it's fair to say that you're quite an expert on FDR. So perhaps you could give us just a a broad summary for for people who don't know who FDR was, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of course. Perhaps give us a broad overview of who he was and what his broad significance was in relation to the history of the 20th century and the world we live in today. Well, Franklin Roosevelt, of course, was elected president of the United States in 1932, uh, which meant, of course, that... uh, uh, he took office at the, at the height, really, of the Great Depression, the world economic crisis that brought the, brought the, uh, the entire world into a, a, a deep uh, state of despair. Uh, and he would go on to be uh, reelected not, uh, not only in 1936, but three additional times. He's the only president in U.S. history to, uh, to be elected to, to office uh, for four terms. Of course, he would not survive the fourth term, as uh, recounted in the book. Uh, he died um, uh, roughly 100 days, a little, little, little later than that, after being uh, reelected in, in 1944. So this meant, of course, that he was president of the United States uh, through the entire Great Depression and through this much, almost the entire Second World War, um, and really stands as one of the most uh, important figures of the 20th century. Mm, mm, absolutely. So... You've written a book here. I've got it here. The last, the last one hundred days, FDR and at war, at war and at peace. And I think by the point that I'd read this, I'd already read at least two biographies on FDR prior to this point. And it was a very interesting, a very detailed read. I have to say, three hundred, I think three hundred or so pages on the last one hundred days of of Franklin Roosevelt's life. So. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about why you decided to focus on the last 100 days and, and what the significance was of that particular period. Yeah, I, I, um, I, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Tom, I've always been a great admirer of Franklin Roosevelt. And um, part of the reason I focused on the last 100 days is because uh, if, you, if you start looking at his uh, activities in office uh, uh, in you know, 1943, 44, um, the decline in his health in 1944, um, and um, in, in a way, the, the, the diminished state of his energy, I think, meant that he really telescoped his efforts uh, on what mattered most to him. Um, and what I found so interesting about this period of the, the fourth term is that he's really focused on, 
on, uh, on the things that matter most to him. And, and it's a kind of fascinating period in his presidency for that reason. He's, uh, there's no question that he is genuinely ambivalent about being president. Um, mm. Part of him really wanted to retire and go back to his home on the Hudson River. He, he famously said in July of 1944, uh, when he announced his decision to run for a fourth term, that uh, all that is within me cries out to go back to my home on the Hudson River. Yes. Um, but he felt a sense of responsibility and duty as, as a good soldier, as the commander in chief of the American Armed Forces, who had been, in a sense, uh, assigned by the people of the United States to bring the war to a conclusion that he had to continue on in office. Um, of course, the press, the conservative press, said this was all nonsense, uh, you know. Um, but I think it was actually quite true. He, he really did uh, feel a sense of, of ambivalence. I mean, part of him really enjoyed being president. Um, he he mm. certainly wanted to see the war through. He wanted to, to see the establishment of the United Nations. That was vitally important to him. Um, but he was tired, as he, as he said frequently to his distant cousin, Daisy Sukli, one of his uh, most intimate contacts, uh, 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 you know, he um, he was tired of being what he called Exhibit A, um, mm. you know, always in the public eye um, mm. and uh, really looking forward to being a private citizen again. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And I did pick that out and, and make note of that in, in your book, that quote about how he had this this yearning, this longing to return home uh, on the Hudson River. And yet he, he was compelled to go and run again for another term. Interesting, because I also think you pick out there about how he magnifies his values. He really focuses in on his his values and what's most important to him. And this has always been a tricky question with FDR, hasn't it, in terms of what, what his values are. I've, I've spoken with academics in the past who focused on um, Franklin Roosevelt and, and, and specifically asked him, what do you think his, his values were? And that question is usually followed by a long pause and a silence before they say, well, I don't really know because he's quite a complicated guy and there are so many things that have been published by him and about him in the primary source literature that, it, that it's very difficult to tell. But I think, I think you're quite apt to note that those things in the, the final stages of his life very much tell us a lot about, about the man and what he cared about the most. So in terms of the book itself, what about, how about the timing of the book? Why did you decide to, to publish the book when you did? Because it was published in 2017, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, part of it was uh, personal. I, I, was, uh, I had the opportunity to really focus on, on writing the book uh, about around that time. But part of it, too, was a kind of determination in, given the uh, political uh, machinations uh, going on in the United States. Um, uh, in uh, 2016 and so forth to, mm. to set down um, a, a book that really tried to articulate uh, th these very important values that, that Roosevelt believed in, his fundamental faith in democracy, his fundamental mm. faith in the American people, and his uh, strong belief that the United States must play a leading role in, in world affairs. Um, it's a real transitional period, as, as you know, uh, Roosevelt's tenure in office really fundamentally changes the relationship between the American people and their government uh, through the through the New Deal and the Hundred Days that uh, he launched in 1933, but also fundamentally changes the relationship between the United States and the rest of the world. 
Uh, and I would argue that the world that we're living in today is very much the world of Franklin Roosevelt. It's not the world of Joseph Stalin. It's not the world of Winston Churchill. Um, it's, it's the world of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and we've been living through a period uh, in recent years when that world has been increasingly brought into question by uh, right-wing populism and by people who are embracing fear, uh, uh, fear of others, fear of the future. Whereas Roosevelt was very proud in saying that uh, we were united, he said, in banishing fear. That's what he called the New Deal when he was working with the American people. And of course, he famously said in his first inaugural address that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So yes. part, of, part of what he attempted to do was to restore the confidence of the American people in themselves and in democracy. And in a sense, uh, in the free market system, which had collapsed in 1933, not only in the United States, but in much of the rest of the world with terrible consequences. I mean, it's, it is the collapse of the world's economy that brings about the rise of uh, fascism in Europe and Asia and the rise of Nazism in Germany. Um, and Roosevelt was absolutely convinced that, uh, that um, uh, he had to bring the United States through this economic crisis in order to restore the people's faith in democracy. Mm -hmm. Very interesting that you mentioned the entry into, into the war and the, the world that we live in today being more reflective of Franklin Roosevelt than Joseph Stalin or Winston Churchill. I'd like to talk a little bit about, I know this is outside the, the parameters of, of your book, but I'm sure you won't mind talking a little bit about the entry into World War II by the United States, because we, we look at this now as a historical fact. Those of us growing up, who've grown up today with, you know, being taught in, in history lessons about World War II and about the Allied victory and Britain and America and Russia standing together against the Nazis. And we take that for granted, but we can't, can we? We, we, we can't take for granted the fact that America did enter into World War II, much less on the side of of Britain and, and Russia. So what in, in short was, was Franklin Roosevelt's role in, in getting, in making that happen? And what sort of obstacles and opposition did he face? It's a very, uh, that's a very good question. And one of the things we have to keep in mind is the, the tremendous uh, hostility towards global engagement on the part of the, a large portion of the American people uh, in the 1930s. Um, for reasons that, you know, I will frankly uh, say I, I've never quite fully understood, um, the United States and the American people reacted with great hostility to U.S. involvement in World War I. Uh, they, you know, Congress would reject the uh, uh, Wilson, President Wilson's call for the United States to join the League of Nations, which was really a Wilsonian cr uh, creation and an American creation. Um, Congress, of course, and the Senate had its own reasons uh, for rejecting that uh, uh, treaty and, uh, and uh, U.S. involvement in the League of Nations. Um, but I think more importantly, um, the American people really turned against um, U.S. involvement in European affairs in particular. Um, there was a sense that we had been duped into the war, that the war was really about profiteering, that uh, munitions makers and bankers made a lot of money on the war, and that uh, you know, 100,000 Americans uh, died uh, fighting uh, in a war that uh, many Americans felt was tied to European imperialism and you know, all these things that were antithetical to the American worldview. 
And so by the time Roosevelt uh, assumed office in 33, there was a strong sense of what is frequently referred to as American isolationism. I think to be really accurate about it, it's an anti-European, anti-British, anti-imperial sentiment more than anything else. The American people were not particularly opposed to, for example, US engagement in Asia and US involvement in China and so forth. And they were much more sympathetic to um, and concerned about, for example, Japanese aggression in Asia and more willing, say, to stand up to Japanese aggression in Asia, say, in the 1930s um, than they were with respect to Nazism and, and uh, what was happening in Europe. So Roosevelt had tremendous obstacles in his way. And as you know, um, in response to this breakdown in international order, the, the um, Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931, the Italian invasion of Abyssinia in 1935, the Spanish Civil War in 1936, the Sino-Japanese War in 1937. I mean, uh, we forget just how bad things were in the 1930s. It's not just a global economic crisis, but this complete breakdown uh, in international order, what was often referred to as international lawlessness. And instead of trying to solve these problems, uh, the vast majority of or a, a significant portion, I should say, of the American people um, wanted to retreat into what was called isolationism. Um, mm. um, and by the time war breaks out, the initial response is not to really to help the British survive, but to create Fortress America. And this is where we see mm. the rise of the America First movement. Mm. America First was really about um, building a kind of wall around the Western hemisphere and keeping the rest of the world out um, and particularly keeping the European problems away from, uh, from America. So for FDR, uh, you know, um, who was very much a, an internationalist and recognized that in order for the world to secure peace for the future, the United States had to play, play a role in world affairs. This was a very difficult period. Um, mm. and one in which his hands were largely tied by the U.S. Congress, uh, which was opposed to American involvement in European affairs and very much opposed to the idea of the United States getting involved in the Second World War. Uh, Roosevelt did what he could initially, uh, trying to um, allow the British, for example, to purchase arms and munitions on a cash and carry basis in 1939 mm -hmm. and 1940. Um, but he was very limited in those initial months and years uh, once war broke out. Mm -hmm. But, but he, he fought tremendously hard, didn't he, to, to make that happen? It's quite interesting, actually, because some of those people you mentioned in the America First movement, people like Charles Lindbergh, aren't recognised as being associated with that particular movement and having some sort of affiliation with the Nazi party. It's, it's quite interesting, really. I went to the Air and Space Museum in San Diego in 2019 with some friends who are based there. And there's a there's a little statue of, of Lindbergh up there and they didn't know anything about that whatsoever when I spoke with them. And yeah. they're, they're educated people, but but he was known primarily as an aviator. And this whole this whole history of of America first. And like I said before, the, the idea that America entered into World War II on the side of the Allies being taken for granted is is something that that's quite to, to me it's quite phenomenal but um but fdr did extremely well to get america into the war and by the time we get to the last 100 days is it is it fair to say that that the war in europe is is going pretty well in in favor of the allies 
Well, it's interesting. This is another thing that I think uh, I tried to stress in the book. Um, there is a kind of assumption that, oh, the war is over, right? Uh, he wins mm-hmm. the 1944 election in November of 44. Everything's going fine. You know, the worst battle casualty figures of the Second World War for the Americans were in December of 1944 uh, with the Battle mm-hmm. of the Bulge, uh, the Ardennes crisis. Um, the war was not over. Um, we hadn't even entered Germany yet. Um, and, uh, you know, this, there was, a, there was a, a, a real letdown in a sense because uh, once the Allies had successfully invaded France in uh, June of 1944, um, that in and of itself is often misunderstood. There's a sense that once we're in France, it's, it's, it's over, the Germans are finished. Um, it took six or seven weeks for us to break out of the Normandy Peninsula. It was very tough going. Uh, the fighting there was incredibly intense. Uh, and then you do finally, at the end of July, 1944, have this breakout where we sweep across Northern France. And it's at that moment that the American people and I would imagine uh, people in Great Britain and, and uh, as well, other Western countries, there, there was a lot of talk that um, the war might be over by Christmas. The Nazis seemed to be mm-hmm. collapsing in the West. Um, but then they firmed up their uh, resistance. Uh, and by early September, um, you know, we were mired down in Eastern France and Belgium and, and the Netherlands. And we wouldn't really cross the Rhine in a meaningful way until the 23rd of March, 1945. That's a long period. Um, and I think there was a kind of war weariness that set in in the fall of 1944 uh, among the American people because, you know, there had been this expectation that war might be over by Christmas. Um, and that's one of the reasons I started the book with Christmas of 1944 was, um, you know, it's a kind of the, the mood in the country is, is not euphoric. Um, it, is, it is a mood of uncertainty. It, it is a mood of, of, of war weariness, as I said. Um, and, uh, you know, when is this finally going to be over? And of course, we have yet to, to defeat Japan. So, there, the, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a... It's a very interesting period, and there's one in which um, there's an actual manpower shortage, uh, which, you know, again, Americans don't realize this, and people don't realize just how difficult things were, uh, even as late as December of 1944. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so a lot going on. One thing that does occupy a lot of space in your book is Yalta, and the discussions that happen at Yalta between Franklin Roosevelt Stalin and Churchill what what really happens there and and what's what's Roosevelt's role there in that negotiation between the three different parties yeah Yalta is of course very famous or infamous depending on your point of view in terms of the the history of the second world war I think I think first of all the the important thing to stress about Yalta is that Yalta the Yalta conference is really as I say in the book and perhaps don't stress enough it's really the Tehran Conference Part Two. Um, mm. Most of what was discussed at Yalta had been initially discussed at the Tehran Conference in 1943, and uh, much of of the agreement or much of the understandings that were kind of finalized in a sense at Yalta um, had already been discussed uh, at Tehran. So um, it's not a it, it, the the issues there are are not new. 
I think the Americans uh, went to Yalta and Roosevelt went to Yalta with three primary goals in mind. Uh, the first one was to orchestrate the final defeat of Germany. Again, mm. we're not in Germany. I mean, people assume, well, it's February 45, the war is over. No, the war was not over. We had not crossed into Germany proper. Um, uh, the, the, you know, again, we had just gone through the Battle of the Bulge. Um, um, uh, as I said to you before, the the casualty figures were enormous for December of 1944. Um, There's a manpower shortage in the United States. Um, these are difficult weeks and months. Um, so the orchestrating the final defeat of Germany in coordination with the Soviet allies was a, was a key goal. Um, and uh, so that was number one. Uh, number two, of course, is um, uh, getting a firm and final commitment of the Soviet Union to declare war on Japan once Germany was defeated. Hmm. I mean, again, um, uh, Secretary uh, of War, uh, General George uh, C. Marshall said it was worth, um, you know, he, he said that he would have stayed on in Yalta with, with the terrible bed bugs and the terrible conditions for an entire month uh, hmm. just to get that agreement. Admiral Leahy, uh, Roosevelt's chief of staff said, the trip to Yalta, getting the Soviets to agree to declare war on Japan was worth the entire trip. Again, a very little known fact about the Second World War, we, we tend to forget. There's a war going on in, in Asia. Four-fifths hmm. four of the Japanese army is in China in the Second World War. Wow. If those troops leave the Chinese mainland, and go on to Japan to defend the home islands uh, mm. in an American-led invasion. I mean, it would it, it, the thoughts of the battle casualties are just horrific, right, in the mm. American um, uh, military leaders' minds. So the declaration of war on the Soviet Union's part is critical because that will help tie down those troops in Manchuria that uh, the Americans were so desperate to keep tied down. We had. Mm -hmm. By this point, all but given up on China as an ally. I mean, the, the, the policy of the United States in the Second World War after, say, 42, is just keep China in, in the game, so to speak, just mm. to make sure that Chiang Kai-shek didn't sign a peace treaty with the Japanese, because that would, again, free up those troops. And then by the mm. time we get to 45, the Soviet Union's role is to tie down those troops. So that was very important. And then, of course, for Franklin Roosevelt, the critical goal at Yalta was to secure the final agreement on the United Nations. Uh, there were two outstanding issues. The, the, the United Nations design had already been articulated and laid out at the Dumbarton Oaks Conference in 1944. Um, but the Soviet Union and the United States and Britain had not agreed on the voting formula for the Security Council, what Roosevelt called the four policemen. Um, and the Soviet Union had initially insisted that all 15 of the Soviet republics must be represented in the General Assembly, uh, an idea that Roosevelt just found ridiculous, right? Uh, as far as he was concerned, the Soviet Union was a single country and they should have one vote, one nation, one vote. Mm. Um, so these were, you know, again, uh, we forget how difficult these issues were. I mean, Stalin was absolutely obdurate on this. He, he, he said, you can talk, for an entire year about it. He wasn't gonna give up the absolute veto. And of course, if we had gone along with that idea, that would mean that the, the great powers could have stopped any discussion from occurring in the Security Council. So if 
you know, for example, if Costa Rica wanted to bring up some issue that in opposition to the United States, the United States could could silence that um, mm. from even being discussed. Uh, ultimately, the formula that was agreed to at Yalta um, was one in which it was what I call a limited veto. In other words, the great powers cannot censor any issue from being discussed and voted on in the Security Council. What they can veto is they can veto um, they can veto um, any action that might be taken. So if the Security yeah. Council votes, for example, to, to send troops into some region, one of the great powers can veto that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, uh, you know, Stalin eventually comes around and agrees to this at Yalta. Uh, and he also reduces the number of uh, seats in the General Assembly for the Soviet Union from the, the uh, 16 initially down to three, the Russia proper, and of course, uh, the Ukraine and Belarus. And given the casualties that had occurred in Belarus and Ukraine, it seemed very justified both to Churchill and to Roosevelt that mm. these two uh, Soviet states be included. I mean, millions of their citizens had been killed by the Nazis in the Second World War. So, mm. um, so from Roosevelt's perspective, and it's interesting from the American perspective, Yalta was a success. Um, mm. The issue, and, and, and there are even reports that the Soviets felt that they'd been kind of taken advantage of at Yalta, that, that the Americans had gotten what they wanted. Um, on the question of Poland, however, you know, it's a much more difficult issue. And again, I think this is uh, to a certain extent largely misunderstood. Um, neither Churchill nor Roosevelt really had much leverage when it came to Poland. Um, mm. They had some, and uh, we can argue about whether Roosevelt could have done more and Churchill could have done more, they probably could have. Um, but, you know, these other issues were, were the critical ones and they weren't going to let an issue like the status of Poland interfere with these other critical matters. So that may be a tough pill to swallow in terms of the Polish people. Uh, Great Britain went to war over Poland. Um, both Roosevelt and Churchill would have preferred to see Poland emerge as a free and democratic state, obviously after the second world war, but they were not so naive as to not recognize that Soviet power was there to stay, that mm. uh, it was a reality that they had to recognize. And there's some very interesting observations, you know, that I make in the book. This notion, for example, that uh, uh, the premier of, of Czechoslovakia, uh, Edward Benesch, had, had seen shortly after Tehran the reality of, of Soviet power and had on his own initiated and negotiated a uh, bilateral treaty with the Soviet Union, which essentially um, involved recognition of, of Czech independence, but also uh, provided provisions where, you know, Czech foreign policy would, in a sense, uh, be not antithetical to Soviet foreign policy. Um, mm. And Roosevelt said to uh, the British ambassador Halifax in January of 1945, why can't the Poles be like the Czechs? Why can't they recognize, you know, there's, they're, they're not going to be able to avoid Soviet uh, influence in their region. It's impossible. Mm. And we can't go to war over Poland. I mean, he, he said that repeatedly, by the way in 1944, 1945, we cannot go to war over Poland. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, again, uh, 
it may come as a shock to, to many, but um, the fact that Poland took up so much time at Yalta was also a surprise uh, to the American delegation, not just to Roosevelt. Um, mm. It became a very difficult issue. And, and the problem is, of course, that uh, as I say in the book, by the time we get to the end of 1944, uh, there are, are indications that, that what's going to happen at the end of the war may not be compatible with the values articulated in the Atlantic Charter and so forth. Um, and what we forget, of course, is that it's not just the fear of Soviet domination of places like Poland that was in the press at the time, but also fear about British imperialism. I mean, with the withdrawal of the Germans from Greece in the fall of 44, um, uh, the most effective resistance to the Nazis in Greece were the communists. And when a provisional government was formed without any communist participation, 200,000 people took to the streets of Athens to protest in early December of 1944 to be fired on by Greek police and British uh, troops. 48 people died. Um, and in the US press, um, the words Poland and Greece are in the same sentence everywhere. Is this what we're fighting for, for British imperialism or for Soviet domination of Eastern Europe? Um, so the concerns here are not just about the Soviet Union, but also about Great Britain. Um, and again, we forget that. Um, so Roosevelt uh, and Churchill both showed up at Yalta hoping that they would be able to negotiate terms for Poland that would be acceptable. The British Foreign Office uh, official wrote, and I quote in the book, uh, an agreement that was acceptable enough for, you know, to allow for recognition of the Polish provisional government by the Western powers. Um, and they thought they had achieved that. But of course, unfortunately, uh, at Yalta, uh, Stalin's sort of stalling tactics and obfuscation eventually it got to the point where it was so frustrating that I think um, um, they made the decision to focus not so much on the composition of the provisional government that would be created uh, as on the idea of free and fair elections. So um, the terms of the Polish agreement called for free and fair elections uh, with, by secret ballot. I mean, there's nothing wrong with uh, what was negotiated. The problem was that the provisional government that was supposed to orchestrate those uh, secret elections and ballot was not established. And um, the Western powers wanted to be able to send representatives to that new provisional government. And Stalin kept rejecting everybody that they suggested. And so mm. we don't really get a settlement over Poland at Yalta. No. And no. it goes on for weeks and months afterwards. And by the end of March, Roosevelt himself is, is fed up and furious uh, and said famously to Avril Her uh, to one of his aides that Avril Herman was right. You can't trust Stalin. Uh, mm. He won't live up to his agreements. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Kind of chilling chilling reflection to have isn't it really when you consider when you consider the the soviet union and, and stalin and yeah and, and again i i think it's also you know we we forget that winston churchill is is a part of this story um we forget that winston churchill flew to moscow in october of 1944 and negotiated the famous sphere of influence document what was mm. what he himself called his naughty document 
mm. where he initially uh, passed a piece of paper over to Stalin, which said, okay, uh, you know, the British want to have Greece. So 90% influence in Greece, 10% Soviet. Uh, we can split uh, Yugoslavia 50-50. Romania will be 75% Soviet, uh, 25% British or Western. Uh, you know, we'll split Hungary, we'll split Yugoslavia 50-50. Uh, you know, so he was horse trading about these issues mm. as well. Um, and uh, so again, both Roosevelt and Churchill recognized that Soviet power is a reality. It, it, yeah. you, you can't pretend it wasn't there. Um, and they both recognized that the Soviet Union is going to have an inordinate amount of influence in uh, Eastern Europe. The question is, how do you ameliorate that situation? And I think Roosevelt firmly believed, and you can see this in his writings, that Yalta was just the beginning, that over time, you know, the situation mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe could improve. Actually, it's going to get worse, but could improve. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, we'll establish cooperation with the Soviet Union, we'll get them into the United Nations, and then that's a beginning point. And then we'll work from there on making sure yeah. that the people in Eastern Europe have a decent way of life. Yeah. So one thing that comes out really clearly in the book, and you've mentioned it already, is the United Nations and Roosevelt's drive to really build the United Nations and create this, this cooperation, like you said before, this internationalism, this international perspective, this outward looking perspective to, to really negate any potential threats of, of further conflagration in the future. What what is the United Nations to to Franklin Roosevelt? Because this seems to be what's driving him forward at such a, a, a cost to his health. So what what does he want it to be, and what does he want it to do exactly? Well, you know, I, I think if we, you're going to fully understand uh, the Rooseveltian vision for the future, we have to take a very comprehensive look, um, and it not only involves the Soviet Union. It involves Great Britain and the British Empire. In other words, as I say in the book, Roosevelt wasn't so much, it, it wasn't so much a conflict of East versus West. It's old versus new. Mm -hmm. And in many respects, the Soviet Union is a less complicated problem for Roosevelt than Great Britain and the British Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, again, he's not alone in this. Uh, the American military leaders and chiefs of staff agreed. Um, they essentially saw the Soviet Union as a continental power that's trying to protect its borders. So, mm -hmm. you know, they are getting into Eastern Europe. They're worried about Manchuria and Japan, so forth and so on. But this is kind of like a, uh, an, an, an expansion of influence that's really driven by the need to protect themselves against a foreign aggression, which they are very justified in feeling after, after World War I and World War II. Um, Whereas, whereas Great Britain is, um, you know, uh, the whole notion of, of imperialism is for Roosevelt antithetical to this modern world that he wants to create. Um, and so, again, going back to the Great Depression, I think it's really, really important to understand that from the perspective of the generation that fought the Second World War and from the people that were involved in the Roosevelt administration, the Second World War has economic causes. It's caused by the Great Depression. In 1944, Roosevelt gave a State of the Union address, which is frequently referred to as his Economic Bill of Rights speech, um, where he said, he's sort of reflecting on what's transpired. Um, 
And he's talking about the American uh, economic system and, and in a sense, the pitfalls of modern industrial capitalism in that it's very exploitative and people can be brought to ruin and so forth. And he says, we've come to the clear realization of the fact that necessitous men are not free men. People mm -hmm. who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff with which dictatorships are made, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a famous line. And then he would go on to articulate what, you know, he said, we have a wonderful constitution guaranteeing freedom of speech, guaranteeing freedom of religion. But in this modern complex world, it's not enough to have this bill of rights. We also need an economic bill of rights. Yeah, um, yeah, and he talks about the need for health insurance, for access to education, to a good job, for businesses to be able to trade in a free and fair world. And so, colonialism—you know, again, uh, the lack of access to raw materials drives Japan to aggression in Asia. Um, the mm -hmm. lack of free trade is bringing about competition between nations. So, it's about promoting a a world that is very much reflective of a kind of an American economic system. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, I would argue that globalization is no accident. It came about by design. So mm. uh, we are promoting freer trade in the world. We're promoting the free exchange of capital. And we see this through the use of um, uh, Lend-Lease, which was yeah. not, a quid, not free uh, by any stretch. No. The United States offered Lend-Lease aid to Britain. Churchill called it the most unsorted act in the spring of 1944. But Lend-Lease came about because in December of 1940, Roosevelt, Churchill wrote to Roosevelt and said, we're broke. Yeah. Um, remember the, the British had, had been paying on a cash and carry basis uh, for American arms, uh, material uh, provisions, et cetera, because of the neutrality laws. Um, and uh, when it came to the end of 1940, um, uh, they, they simply couldn't afford that anymore. And Churchill writes this impassioned letter to Roosevelt. Um, um, and Roosevelt famously went on the, 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 to give a press conference and, and talked about the need to help Britain. And, and again, remember the isolationists are talking about Fortress America. So they are not against building up American armed forces, hmm. but they want to use that to do to create this Fortress America. Roosevelt wants to, he makes the argument, which is very subtle, that reinforces that saying, well, actually, when you think about it, Britain's defense is our defense. And if Britain's defense is yeah. our defense, why shouldn't we send some of our material, war material to them? Mm. And then he famously said, and again, think of the newsreels and the photographs of London burning at night with the fire hoses and the firemen yeah. trying to put out these fires. And that's when he famously said, if your neighbor's house is on fire and he comes over and wants to borrow your garden hose, you're going to give him the hose. You're not yeah. going to ask him to yeah. pay for it. Right. And then, of course, two weeks later, he gave that wonderful speech where he said, um, we must become the great arsenal of democracy. Again, those Rooseveltian phrases, mm -hmm. arsenal of democracy, absolutely brilliant. Again, uh, but, again uh, but most Americans don't realize that it wasn't free. Um, the Americans agreed to give Britain Lend-Lease aid, but there was a quid pro quo. And yes. uh, what the State Department demanded was an end to the British system of imperial preference, which allowed goods to be traded within the British Empire duty-free, whereas American goods couldn't be sold uh, within the empire because of tariffs. So basically, the price was to embrace this freer trade notion that 
the Cordell Hall, the US Secretary of State had been promoting all the way through the thirties. Um, it's a complicated story and it ultimately um, results, I would argue in the signing of the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade in 1947. But, uh, and, you know, it sounds as if I've gotten off track here, but really this is, it's a very comprehensive approach to what should yeah. happen after the world, uh, um, to the world after 1945. Yeah. So, the United Nations component is critical because um, Roosevelt um, felt uh, that maintaining great power cooperation was key to the future world peace. Mm -hmm. um, and the instrument through which that was going to happen was through the United Nations and more specifically through the Security Council. So for him, establishing the UN was absolutely vital. Yeah, it's interesting because I, th I think about Roosevelt, and I think he seems like the sort of person who wants to fix the world. He, and, and he has this he has this incorrigible faith in himself, in his ability to do so and negotiate these agreements. He thinks that he's going to fix the issues between the Jews and the Arabs in the Middle East and, and all sorts, and is, is disappointed when he, his charm and his charisma and his negotiation skills don't have the desired effect. So he sounds like he's, he's got a tremendous amount of ambition. He's got a very clear vision. I'd say he has, like you say, about the comprehensiveness of the UN, because it is comprehensive in terms of what Roosevelt wants to happen and the future that he wants to create. It, it's got to be at least as strong as Hitler's, I would say, in terms of the, the, the polar opposite. So Hitler's got his vision and FDR really does, he, he really does position his, his vision against that in very stark, diametric opposite. Um, so he's doing all sorts in this last 100 days. I have to I have to ask about his health, though, because this is the last 100 days for a reason, because he, he dies at the end of it. So so what is the state of of Roosevelt's health in this period? And and is he caught a bit flat footed on the state of his health? Do you think? Well, he was in very serious health. I mean, uh, in the spring of 1944, uh, after returning from the Tehran conference uh, in December of 1943, he gets back to Washington. Um, and uh, in the spring of 44, he, he had bronchitis, he had the flu, he, he, he just didn't appear well and, and couldn't seem to shake off these illnesses. And it's in this period that his daughter, Anna, has moved back into the White House. Um, and she is quite concerned about his health and uh, urges him to get a kind of full medical workup. Um, and I think so did Eleanor Roosevelt. And so it's in March of 1944 that a team of doctors was brought together uh, to examine the president. I mean, obviously he had his White House physician, a man named Dr. Ross McIntyre, who was an ear, nose and throat specialist who'd been attorney, uh, the, uh, the uh, 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 medical officer of the, of the United States and um, the Surgeon General, excuse me, and um, had been FDR's personal physician for a number of years. Um, but when they when they engage in that workup, they discover uh, there, there's a young cardiologist. These are all naval doctors uh, associated mm -hmm. with the U.S. Navy, and there's a young naval cardiologist named Dr. Brune, who discovers that Roosevelt uh, is in the early stages of congestive heart failure. And this sets off a kind of panic uh, among uh, these physicians, although two out of the three uh, teams um, 
well, I, I shouldn't say sets off a panic, sets off a fierce debate among these doctors about just how ill the president really is. Um, uh, he's ordered to go on rest. That's for that reason that he travels to South Carolina to visit his friend uh, 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 um, yeah, for, for almost four, for four weeks uh, in the spring of 44. Um, has another workup in May. Um, and um, at that point, I think one of the doctors, his name was Dr. Leahy in Boston, uh, begins to agree with the cardiologist that this is really serious. Um, and he, in fact, was so concerned about it that he actually dictated a memo that uh, was signed and sealed and witnessed, actually notarized, that was put in a safe in his office just in case somebody should ever question his uh, medical skills because mm. of his involvement in this. Um, and basically what, what he says and what he says in a conversation to um, Dr. McIntyre uh, at the same time is that he doesn't think Roosevelt can survive another four years in office um, and that he should think carefully about his vice presidential pick. Mm. Um, so there, there, there were, Concerns about his health, uh, the, the, the net result of the medical workup is that they ordered him to cut down on his smoking to six cigarettes a day, to go on a low-fat diet, to take digitalis, to reduce his hypertension, he was very bad hypertension, and um, to cut the number of hours he worked, you know, to four or six hours a day, which is, of course, an absurd notion for the President of the United States running a global war. Mm. Um, so... It, it, you know, I, I think it's important to understand that uh, he's a sick man. There's no doubt about it. But he had contracted polio uh, in 1921 and had been living with health issues for decades. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, he had sort of learned to just overlook these issues. Um, yeah. And... Um, as I say in the book, he, he knew he had a heart problem and he, he even discussed it uh, once or twice with uh, Daisy Sukley, his uh, confidant. But, um, but I, I don't think he expected to die when he did. Uh, I think mm. he expected to be able to carry on uh, to see the war through to its conclusion. But there is no question that he is a diminished man, as I say in the book. And um, he's constantly trying to get his energy back. And that's yeah. why... Uh, he spends so much time away from the White House. I mean, in those last 100 days, the longest period he's in the White House continuously is in March. I think it's 16 days in a row. Uh, he's at Yalta for seven weeks. He goes to, to Warm Springs. Um, he goes mm -hmm. to Hyde Park. Um, and, you know, all of these trips are essentially efforts to try to recoup his energy and his health. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, his staff and the people close to him are watching this very carefully. And there's a kind of sinking feeling, uh, particularly among William Hassett, who's personal secretary who handed, handled all of his official uh, correspondence and his private secretary, uh, um, uh, Grace Kelly, um, uh, Grace Tully, excuse me, that, um, that he's not going to recover. Um, and uh, by, by the last trip they make to Warm Springs at the end of March um, 1945, 
uh, Hassett pulls Dr. Bruin aside and Bruin is traveling everywhere with Roosevelt now, the cardiologist, mm. um, because they're concerned about his health. They're taking, uh, you know, electrocardiogram readings twice a day. They're really watching him carefully. Um, but he pulls Bruin aside that first evening and says, tell me the truth. Um, he's not going to make it. Uh, he's, and, uh, and then Bruin goes into this, you know, this discussion of, well, you know, if he, cuts down his work and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Hassett just kind of shakes his head and says, well, that, that's it. Um, he's slipping away from us. Um, we're not, you know, and he dies 12 days later. Mm. Interesting on that, because as I, as I read your book, it, it struck me that, that Roosevelt was a, not a particularly good patient, let's put it like that. And he has his daughter, chiding him to to take more rest and to not overdo it and to follow the doctor's orders and everything else tying that then to a comment that his wife Eleanor makes after after he passes away do you think that he knowingly shortened his life by carrying on regardless do you think he consciously made you've mentioned that you don't necessarily think that he's going to die when he does die he doesn't expect that but do you think that he is making a conscious choice to some extent that he will shorten his life if necessary in order to bring about this vision that he has for the world in the post-war situation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's no question in my mind. Um, mm. There's the conversation that Eleanor Roosevelt has with Margaret Ferryweather um, uh, that I recount in the book um, in March of 1945, where, she, where Eleanor says to her friend, you know, he made the decision to run for the third term. And it's interesting, I think it's important to recognize too that the most controversial decision about running for a third term and breaking that two-term tradition, there was no law prohibiting the president at that time mm. from running for a third term, but no one had done it because Washington had set this precedent, said no, two terms is enough. Mm -hmm. um, that was the controversial move. Um, in 1944, people kind of expected him to run. They understood that he wanted to finish the war it was a kind of an acceptance of it, I think, among a larger share of the public. It was much more controversial in 1940. Mm -hmm. uh, and as he was contemplating this, um, and it's interesting too, that it's in 1940 that he picks Henry Wallace to be his vice president. And Wallace is by far the most, uh, you know, he is the greatest champion of the New Deal um, within the F. Roosevelt administration. Um, and he says to James Farley, Roosevelt said to James Farley in 1940, in July of 1940, a man like me could crack up or drop dead at any moment. Um, and so he, he recognizes that uh, his mortality. Um, and uh, I always found it interesting because this is when Roosevelt's making the transition from what he called himself Dr. New Deal to Dr. Win the War. Um, and there was a lot of concern among his New Deal supporters that this emphasis on foreign policy was going to mean that the New Deal was finished, that a lot of the uh, projects and, and programs that they had hoped to pursue as part of the New Deal would be pushed aside. Um, and I think Roosevelt was thinking about the possibility that he might die in office. And mm -hmm. he chose Wallace because Wallace would be the most reliable vice president to carry on the New Deal. Uh, Wallace, of course, turned out to be controversial among the uh, kind of elite of the Democratic Party. He ended up being very popular among the rank and file, but uh, they were 
adamantly opposed his continuing in 1944 and really forced FDR to drop Wallace. And of course, as a consequence, uh, Harry Truman became vice president. Um, mm -hmm. Roosevelt, of course, at this point, this is also part of the story that doesn't really get into the book because I don't deal so much with the summer of 44, but I think he doesn't want a political fight at this moment. Uh, he's mm -hmm. concerned about the United Nations. He's concerned about, you know, finishing those jobs that he wants to finish. And if Wallace is going to become a political liability among, uh, you know, certain elements in the U.S. Senate, for example, it's not worth it to him um, because he needs a cooperative Senate to get the U.N. charter passed and so forth. And so uh, he willingly drops Wallace. And uh, he's obviously not going to say that publicly, but privately, he willingly drops Wallace and, and allows Truman to become vice president. But um, I, I do think that, uh, uh, you know, again, as Eleanor said, uh, she said to Fairweather, he knew in 1940 that continuing on in office might shorten his life. But he thought uh, if it meant that he could finish the work that he had set out to accomplish, it would be worth it. And then she said rather chillingly, I agree with him. And I think the same thing holds in 1944. He, he was absolutely determined to see the world through, to, uh, the, uh, through the war, uh, absolutely determined to see the establishment of the United Nations. Um, and I'm quite sure in his heart of hearts knew that, um, that there was a real risk uh, to his health, but that again, that that would be worth it if he could see it through. The other question that doesn't play a huge role in the book, but which is interesting, is that on a couple of conversations, he talks about resigning, uh, stepping down as president uh, once the United Nations is established. And there was even there's even a conversation or two where he talks about becoming the first secretary general of the United Nations uh, and leaving the presidency. Um, so it's interesting. So he he that ambivalence, I think, you know, once the war was over, uh, uh, he loved being president. There's no doubt about it. Um, but he also really wanted to rest. And I think it's quite conceivable that he might have resigned uh, once mm. the war was finished. Wow. Well, that's an interesting idea. And, and one that very much speaks to his values, like you say, about internationalism and international relationships and cooperation and setting up the world in, in such a way, using systems and relationships, if you like, so that something like World War II just, just can't happen again because everybody's got a sustainable relationship with each other. I find it interesting what you said, going back to your point about Russia before and the perception of Russia and Eastern Europe, because this is, this is something that, that is argued about or has been argued about recently, this idea of unipolarity versus multipolarity. So from, from the Russian side, Vladimir Putin and, and his um, advisors, to whatever extent they may be really called advisors, like Alexander Dugin, they speak in favour of multipolarity. They say, well, actually, the East is Russia's domain, so let us deal with it and America get lost. And, um, and the, 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 there is that idea. So it's interesting that that, that idea of Russia having its backyard and that was that being accepted by the likes of, of FDR and, and Churchill back then. So, so that is quite interesting. So in terms of when, when Roosevelt dies in the book, I have to say it was, it's quite graphic the way that, that you go through that in the book, the way that you recount his actual death. And, and I find it very emotional because I think it was probably the third, at least the second biography of, of Roosevelt's that I was reading. And so 
this this was the most graphic account that I'd read of of his of his death, and it's quite sudden and quite shocking that this man who had the plan, yeah, he had this master plan, and he had such great confidence and such great charisma in fulfilling these plans as well, was in the end fallible, and that that he did in the end succumb. But one thing that I found particularly moving was the stage of mourning, and how he was mourned not just in Britain, but also in Russia as well. And, and I reflected on that. I thought, can you imagine in this day and age, a single global leader who would be mourned as widely by such disparate people as Franklin Roosevelt was? I, I really can't imagine it. And I can't think of anybody else in history, perhaps, who would have been mourned as widely as he was. And that really did that really did touch me. I found that particularly moving. This, this man who was driving towards towards connection towards relationships towards accord and and how that touched so many people it, it really was quite quite incredible and it kind of brings us on to his legacy and you mentioned at the top of the call that the world that we're living in now is more reflective of franklin roosevelt than it is of stalin or churchill or anyone else but there have been efforts i think it's fair to say to dismantle that world not just on the macro level in terms of the UN and those international organizations like that, but also on the micro level as well. And this idea of populism, what would you say as a word or words of caution to those who would like to roll back the world that FDR created? Well, I, you know, again, I, I think it would be a mistake. Um, one of the things I, I, you know, I often say is that uh, Franklin Roosevelt built the house we live in. Um, we can we remodel the house, we move the furniture around, but tearing down the house—that—that's a very serious proposition. And uh, mm -hmm. even in the United States, even with the conservative uh, movement that you see uh, today, uh, the notion of throwing Social Security out the window or unemployment insurance or these basic provisions. Uh, of the New Deal um, really would, would not warrant any kind of serious consideration. We can argue about how much government intervention in the economy, um, but the idea that the US government has a, the federal government has a responsibility to maintain a kind of basic measure of economic security for the American people is, is widely accepted, uh, even among conservatives. Um, and I think the same thing applies to uh, the the, the role of the United States in, in world affairs. Um, we, we talked earlier about the breakdown in international order in the 1930s um, and how in the absence of uh, American involvement and engagement with the world, uh, you know, the world largely descended into international anarchy starting in 31 and, and, and so forth. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the uh, there's so much that could be said about this. Um, in, in many ways, what, what I think what Roosevelt was trying to do, um, you know, again, I, I think he operated on two levels uh, throughout the war. Uh, on the one hand, there is the rhetorical Roosevelt who talks about the four freedoms, the need to establish freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, um, uh, freedom from want and freedom from fear everywhere in the world, as he said in that famous speech. Um, 
And of course, for FDR and for the American people, uh, freedom of religion and freedom of speech are built into the constitution. They are used to that idea. Mm. But again, going back to what I said before, recognizing that the world had, that the war had economic consequences. Uh, Roosevelt insisted that you also had to work towards freedom from want, you know, freedom from poverty, from destitution, those kinds of economic conditions that would lead people to desperate measures and support mm. anti-democratic regimes and ideologies like fascism. Um, that for us, uh, uh, for, the, for, the, for the American people to really be secure and for the world to really be secure, we all had to work towards these goals and also freedom from fear so that no nation should fear an act of physical aggression by any neighbor anywhere in the world. Um, these were vitally important uh, ideas and represent a tremendous expansion of US foreign policy. Um, but again, I think it's very important to recognize that. So what, what he's essentially saying is that the security and well-being of people in other parts of the world, in distant parts of the world, is directly tied to the security and well-being of the people of the United States. And that sort of relationship between those issues was not just, uh, didn't just exist in, in, in that context, but really exists globally. Um, mm -hmm. Roosevelt saw the world as a kind of one gigantic neighborhood and you had to take care of your neighbors uh, in order to live in a sound and secure environment. Um, so he is, he's very dedicated to this idea, um, but he's also a, a politician and a statesman and a global leader. And, and so while on the one hand, he's rhetorically referring to these noble visions that uh, he, that, you know, these goals that he wants the world to try to strive for. Um, at the same time, he also has to deal with someone like Joseph Stalin on an issue like Poland, where, you know, the hard reality of geopolitics steps in. And in that sense, um, um, he's very dedicated to the notion of great power cooperation. So, you know, I talk about this sort of Machiavellian reasoning, you know, what Roosevelt's trying to do here, he's trying to maneuver Stalin into a certain position in terms of maintaining engagement with the world. I mean, the interview he gives with Anne O'Hare McCormick in March of 1945 is absolutely fascinating. And he literally says, we used the Second World War. We, you know, the Soviet Union was not part of the world order. And mm. um, it was the German attack on Russia that provided us the opportunity to pull them into the international community. Mm. And he was absolutely determined to keep them there. It's not that Stalin is a nice guy. It's mm. not that the Russians are a wonderful, you know, that the Soviet regime is a, is a wonderful system but that it is critically important to engage and maintain that great power engagement in order to avoid a third world war. And I, you know, as, as, I, as I quote the 1945 State of the Union address, he talks about that to the American people. We can't make that same tragic uh, mistake again that we made after the first world war. You know, the fact that we couldn't create a perfect world um, and, and uh, you know, we have to accept the fact that not everyone is going to think and, and, and act like we do, but um, that um, we, we can't uh, reject that notion of cooperation because if we do, we may go down the same tragic road again, the world to a third world war. I, I really think he believed that that was a possibility. And of course, with the advent of air power and uh, even putting aside the atomic bomb, the, the, 
horrific consequences of the, uh, you know, the Allied bombings of German cities and, and Tokyo and so forth. I, I, I mean, the level of violence meted out in the Second World War means it's a third world war is just not, not an option from Franklin Roosevelt's perspective. And I think from, from his uh, point of view, uh, it was absolutely vital to maintain that great power cooperation. So the war is a means to do that. Um, yeah. and, um, and, and, and establishing the Security Council is absolutely vital. So in a, in a sense, the UN is a direct reflection of that vision. Because on the one hand, you have the General Assembly where the issues of social and economic uh, well-being are going to be articulated. Uh, we end up with the World Health Organization and we end up with the World Food Program, uh, you know, UNICEF and so forth. That is where the social and economic issues uh, that he addressed in the Four Freedoms Address are going to be, uh, are going to be um, discussed. Um, whereas uh, the Security Council is where the, the four policemen are gonna sit. And um, again, the idea is to avoid a third world war. And in a sense, I, you could make the argument that he was successful. Uh, we haven't had a mm. third world war. Mm -hmm. There's one last question I've got to ask you, David, and it's about the very final call to action, if you like, in the book. In the very end of the book, you, you implore readers to remember the price that people paid who sacrificed in World War II, including FDR, and to have the courage and to, take, to step up and take responsibility. For the individual, what does that mean, to have the courage to step up and take responsibility in that context in ensuring that we don't descend into to a state of, of nationalism isolationism or, or general xenophobia yeah I, again I think it's 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 very important to uh, to recognize that the generation that fought and died in the second world war um, uh, you know um, took on a, a responsibility that uh, that a few of us can could imagine to these, these days. Um, I mean, for example, um, I often talk about the air crews of the Second World War. The highest casualty rates of the war were actually in the air crews. You know, we think flying in a, in a bomber was mm -hmm. a glamorous, uh, these, are, these are the guys that haul the glamour, you know. Uh, but to fly those 30 missions and to survive was, uh, was uh, you know, your, your chances of being killed were, were higher than in any other service. You know? So, you know, as you're climbing into the tail gunner of a B-17 um, to fly uh, another mission, uh, you're putting your life on the line um, mm. for those values that Roosevelt was talking about. Um, mm. Essentially, the war aims of the United States uh, in the Second World War were to establish the, the four freedoms, as Roosevelt said, everywhere in the world. So, um, uh, and, and when you think about his concept of banishing fear, as he said uh, on numerous occasions during the, during the New Deal period, that this notion that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. I mean, again, I find that line just chilling because here you have a paralyzed man who couldn't stand on his own without steel braces strapped to his legs, uh, in a sense, lifting a paralyzed nation off its, off its knees and urging the American people um, not to give in to their fears, not to give in to xenophobia, not to give in to bigotry and hatred, but to embrace um, hope and confidence in the future. That, that's what he's referring to. And I think as we 
as we look around the world today and we see the, the, the reemergence of xenophobia and of racial hostility and anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry, uh, we, we would do well to ask ourselves, um, you know, can we not rise to this, the, the challenges of our own time and our own day and live up to our own responsibilities, both at home and internationally, uh, as the generation that fought the Second World War did? Um, you know, th these were people that were incredibly brave and uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans, millions of people worldwide died uh, fighting for those values that Roosevelt articulated during the war. So um, for me, uh, turning away from those values and turning back towards fear, fear of the other, fear of, of the future, th these are um, moves away from, steps backward from the, the, the wonderful vision that Roosevelt tried to articulate for the future. Um, you know, as he said, when he was drafting his final speech, which he never gave, it was time to cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together and to work together in peace. Again, th this man knows that not everybody's going to agree on everything. Not, not everyone thinks alike and sees everything alike, but it was vitally important to try and to work together because the alternative, the idea of a third world war, as he said, was abs an absolute impossibility. I think that's a good place to leave it. David Walner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tom, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to threestewardships.com or message me directly to tom at threestewardships.com. That's tom at threestewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success. If you've listened thus far, you will be rewarded with some bonus content on this particular episode. After our conversation, David thought to share some more of FDR's words in relation to the concerns that he had that the American people might revert to isolationism after World War II. Here it is. It's interesting, as uh, quoting from my book here, as Roosevelt said in 1945, I think uh, he was very concerned about uh, the American people reverting to isolationism. And he was very concerned about the kind of disillusionment that might creep back into the American body politic uh, once the war was over. Uh, and so in January of 1945, when he was giving his State of the Union address, and again, this is before Yalta, it's, it's almost as if he's warning the American people you know, about how difficult things might be uh, in the coming weeks and months, and even when the war is finally over. And he said, uh, he, as I say in the book, he cautioned the American people not to forget, quote, in our disillusionment after the last war, we preferred international anarchy to international cooperation with nations which did not see and think exactly as we did. We gave up the hope of gradually achieving a better peace because we had not the courage to fulfill our responsibility in an admittedly imperfect world. We must not let that happen again, he said. 
or we shall follow the same tragic road again, the road to a third world war. And I think if there's any line that sums up Roosevelt's determination and thinking in the last hundred days, that is it. Uh, he was sincerely concerned about the possibility that uh, we could see the outbreak of a third world war. And he was absolutely determined uh, to avoid that scenario and to try to convince the American people that they had to, as he said, live up to their international responsibilities in an admittedly imperfect world.